Welcome back to the fifth episode of the Scoop College Basketball Podcast presented by Hoop Scoop Media. We have a, there was a great weekend in college basketball. Unfortunately, I was busy lots of Saturdays, so I did not get to watch many games, but I saw some of them, especially Gonzaga St. Mary's, which we will go into discussion about momentarily. But first, just some self plugs. Follow our Instagram, Twitter at Hoopscoop Media. Uh, check out our website, hoopscoopmedia.com. No content up there in the last week since we've podcasted last, but still great content to come. We have some posts on our Instagram coming up. And yeah, subscribe to the podcast, rate it five stars. And without further ado, let's get into the actual content. So. We have some a few commits from the last week, and Auburn really lucked out. They got a pair of guard commits in Todd Pettiford and LeBaron Phylon, who are both like top 40 guys according to most of the ranking sites. So those are two huge gets, along with uh, big man Peyton Marshall, who committed a few months ago. The Tigers currently sit at third in the 2024 recruiting class rankings. San Diego, the Toros landed three-star Kevin Patton Jr. He is the highest recruit in program history. Steve Levin, their uh, crew in San Diego, has not been doing that much winning compared to expectations this season, but he's doing good in the recruiting trail, and that's that's a good start. Another international commit that we have is Florida getting international big man Alex Condon. Um, Obviously, since he's Australian, I don't know a lot about him. I do trust uh, Florida's staff and especially Todd Golden's ability to evaluate talent. So, I don't know. He could be like the next Castleton type player. I haven't read much up on him, but solid get for... Florida for sure and now to get into actual news we have some coaching news which will kind of also tear kind of also uh, relates to something else that Jim Beheim is planning on returning for the 2023-24 season and Dan since you attended Syracuse briefly in the uh, past I want to get your first thoughts on this. Yeah, Austin, I mean, one of the many things I know about Syracuse, and it's one of the reasons I started out there, is it's a, an absolute powerhouse of student media. A lot of great young journalists up there, and they do a great job covering Syracuse men's basketball. And I think one of the reasons prior to Beheim's comments that he had been trending a bit on Twitter, TikTok, Twitter, TikTok, Twitter, TikTok, and the like, is that he, he had had some tense moments uh, with a reporter or two who were, who were literally my age or our age, you know, our class, you know, in school up at SU, and it wasn't really painting or Beheim wasn't really putting himself in the best light there. Yeah, not to interrupt thing. you here, but like I didn't that situation here didn't didn't make sense to me at all because the reporter was asking about right. uh, Benny Williams because he was uh, no show in their game versus Virginia, I believe it was. And yeah. like Beheim said previously before the game that he would address that after the game. And then when the reporter asked that. He was just like, is that the most important thing? Well, I mean, it's definitely stacks up there because he's a starter that just didn't show up. And 
like I, I, that just didn't make sense to me. But you you can continue with the, your uh, thought. Well, that's necessary. That's 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 basically the background story I would provide too. Is it's necessary context uh, in a season that's been uh, on on the mid side. You know, to use that that ca- I know we're going to bring up that casual phrasing again uh, before too long here, but it's been an up and down year uh, for Q seven and six in ACC play right now, fourteen and ten overall, uh, five home losses already this season. So just not that classic blue blood types year for the Qs. And when you have that as the backdrop to the way uh, Coach Behan has been handling those press interactions, young and old, you know, to, to kind of use that phrase as well. It, it doesn't it doesn't reflect well. And now you get this odd story that I know you're going to introduce as well, Austin, where Coach Beheim's on the record with ESPN and speaking about a couple of ACC rivals lamenting uh, a couple of particular schools about buying teams, you know, quote, buying teams in the NIL uh, permi- uh, permissible era. And that just gets you even more of a mess in terms of the whole storyline surrounding Coach Beheim, whether it's the way he describes his own future at Syracuse, which is he used the unique phrase at first, I, I can do whatever I want. It was like the paraphrase to paraphrase him. That was basically what he was alluding to. So, and in, in the same breath, almost, he goes on to, or in the same interview with ESPN, I should say, he ma- makes mention of a couple of particular schools about accusing them of buying players on their, in terms of stacking up their rosters through NIL. So Austin, you can definitely take us further into the story, but it is, it, it's definitely, I think his his approval rating and his image have taken a hit in this season. Yeah, that is correct. So <clears throat> Beheim recently said a few days ago that he was talking about NIL and all that stuff, and he implied that Pitt and Wake Forest, I think he also mentioned Miami bought their teams, but Miami kind of actually did buy their team. But like Pitt and Wake Forest, like when you look at those teams, like who did they buy? Like Pitt's best player is Blake Hinson, who... His last season before this was a 2019-20 season. He transferred to Iowa State. He never played there. He, like, left the team after, like, he didn't like what his minutes were going to be with the Cyclones, I believe, is what happened. So, like, it's not like he was a hot commodity in the transfer market. Like, Pitt just got a great go with him. And, like, it's not like Pitt has a bunch of high-profile guys, like, and... Same with Wake Forest, like some of their transfers like, that they've gotten, like I know Andrew Carr, you're a big Delaware guy, like he averaged 10 and 5 in the Colonial, like he was good, but like not someone the high majors were necessarily trying to like buy and like it, referencing those two programs just made it sound like Beheim was just like frustrated with everything going on with Syracuse and is trying to take down on other programs and yeah it's and he uh retracted those statements um recently as well but i mean that just kind of seems like a forced apology almost um i think we can both agree that uh Beheim is a legendary college basketball coach but that he needs to step away after this season he his legacy is just Nothing that he's doing right now is helping Syracuse is bad this year. I mean, it's it's time for him to call it quits. He's had a legendary career, but it's just it's kind of going downhill at this point. And I think Syracuse would benefit with a new leader that would help set the program up better for the future. It's definitely, I think, a point of conversation in that fan base. And it's very much a basketball school. It's a dedicated fan base. 
I bring up neat close losses, near losses. Want to see how you know teams I describe as mid, you know, how are they really competing against those ranked upper echelon teams in their conference? The Orange did play at number 17 Miami, got a four-point loss in Coral Gables, more recently hosted Virginia. That's a top 10 opponent, at least at the time, and took a five-point loss. So I mean there were reasonably competitive games against the better teams in the conference, but that's still the how much does that when you we're talking about you know not moral victories but just quality losses how much does that really compensate for the body of work I mean the body of work is pretty ugly you have in non-conference play a one point loss to Bryant you have a loss by double digits to Colgate at home and that's not the first time that's happened either under a Beheim so I, I I do think that it's one of those situations where similarly to Notre Dame with Mike Bray not that Mike Bray is on the same level as Jim Beheim his you know in terms of how we'll, how history will look at them but. You know, Coach Bayon's gonna have to make up his mind about how he wants to go out because at some point, that's a proud athletic department at Syracuse, and they aren't. They, they. I don't think there's really gonna be the ability politically to unceremoniously cut ties with him, but I don't. I, I, I just don't think it's necessarily inevitable that he'll have an, a perfect swan song because it just seems like he's been a little bit terse with <laughs> some constituents up there, and that that's not an easy road to go down or or a wise one necessarily. Yeah, and you brought up Mike Brader, like. Bray like knew it was his time to just get out. Like the he he retired. Obviously, he didn't retire in the middle of the season, but he made plans to retire at the end of the season. So like he kind of was smart enough to realize that like this just isn't for me anymore. And Bayheim, obviously, Bayheim has a much greater legacy than Bray, but he just he needs to. uh just step away at the end of the year. He should not be returning for next year. Syracuse, like I said again, Syracuse just needs to run with a fresh start and just start a new program. Like, just start their post-Bayheim era. I think the sooner they start it, the better it'll be because Bayheim is just dragging his program down at the moment, even though he's done... So- Again, like he's been a tremendous coach, one of the best coaches in college basketball history, but he just doesn't have it anymore, especially with the NIL era. Like, I know that was a thing that Bray didn't like. That's another thing that Bayheim is just, it's just not fitting with, like, as he mentioned, like in those comments. That, so I don't, I don't know why he's returning, but. Well, I, I think, I think Jay Bayheim is rather uncomfortable with the notion of proclaiming himself to be a lame duck. Like I think Mike Bray kind of came to terms with that, or at least that's what evidenced by his actions. Whereas I, I just don't know that the, the ego or really just the coaching style of Beheim or some combination thereof would really allow him to, to really give himself the leeway to say, Oh, I'm going to be okay with my players knowing that I'm on my way out anyway. And I, I think coach Beheim just wants to keep that level of authority of being an institution, like a long time I'm in place here for, the, the three re- recruiting classes before you, as well as the three recruiting classes after you. And so this is how we're going to run things. Um, and I, I totally get that for a head coach's perspective, but uh, I, I do wonder about, there was a plan in place and it's been reported on, you know, several years ago to have a transition, you know, post Beheim and it didn't go through it. Just, he actually happened to remain in, in at his home. I, so there has been a transition plan in place before. I wonder how much that prior plan could be maintained if it comes into use or needs to be executed here in the, in the more near future. Yeah, and like you said, Syracuse can't fire Jim Beheim. Like he's just too much of a legend of status there. But please, Jim Beheim, just walk away at the end of the season and 
to move along with uh, some to the other coast, the West Coast, uh, St. Mary's. They beat Gonzaga on Saturday night, and they I feel like they just had the extra step to prove that they're legit because their like, metrics look great, everything like that, but they didn't really have the wins necessarily. Like They did beat San Diego State um, earlier this season, which was a good win, but... They just need like a few more of those like top tier wins to like cement themselves like as a, like a legit top fifteen maybe even top ten team, and they got it over Gonzaga. They were trailing most of the game, but Aiden Mahaney, Aiden Mahaney is so good. He was he really had like a poor first half. I think he was like one for ten at some point, but then he just he just took over the second half and. Going into the overtime period, he is one of the best freshmen in the country, without a debate, really. He is one of the best players in the WCC. He will be on the WCC first team. That is a 10-team first team because I don't know why conferences do that, but he would, he's probably one of the five best players regardless. Um, Yeah, like, we've obviously talked a lot about how St. Mary's is, like, if they're really that legit, like after this game, like we've seen that they can beat a Gonzaga team that like the Gonzaga didn't play terrible this game necessarily. Like they were leading for most of it. So what are your thoughts on St. Mary's after we've seen the results of this game? Really impressed by Mahaney, really impressed by St. Mary's. You just have to heap the praise on the fact that the Gales at home keep it under control despite trailing. Uh, by eight at the half, St. Mary's had scored only 24 points in that first half. And, and a big part of that, Mahaney, a, a slower start. And I had to double check his freshman status, but he he's, he is a freshman, despite the way we saw him just take the game into his hands. I mean, this is St. Mary's biggest showcase on their campus this season, right? Is when they get to host Gonzaga. Uh, this was the 10th time that Gonzaga and St. Mary's have met uh, when they both had teams have been ranked entering the ball game, and Gonzaga had won eight of the first nine in such situations. Now St. Mary's gets the win here, and they actually the fans don't the students don't storm the floor. They, they it's, it's a celebration, it's a big deal. But St. Mary's, you know, to read the story uh, by ESPN about this ball game, they're they're looking or by the AP, excuse me, they're they're St. Mary's looking to make this not a routine occurrence because it's going to be a great rivalry for years to come. But they're looking to make this less of a, an extraordinary earth shattering event. I mean, this is a reset of expectations for St. Mary's where their program is now expected to compete with Gonzaga in a really even matched rivalry year over year. And Mahaney, if he sticks around St. Mary's uh, for any, you know, significant length of a, anything close to a classic, you know, three or four year college career, he can be a big part of that uh, in the future years. But Mahaney, just take a look at his season average now. He's averaging 15 a game. So he's not, he's you know, obviously he has help scoring behind him as well. So he's not, you know, one of those blow you away scorers in particular. But the fact that he's doing this as such a young player, out of California, California zone, getting it done for not Gonzaga, not the mid-major darling of the generation that Mahaney grew up in, but you know, kind of the next next team up, I think, if you if you talk to St. Mary's fans. So you said it, Connor. St. Mary's helps themselves in terms of backing up their beautiful Ken Palm metrics with a really strong win. Uh in the WCC, of course, that's a, one of the best wins you're gonna get. And they take they convert, they take full advantage. And now this really gives St. Mary's an inside track on. You're not the bracketologist either, but is, how much do you think they help their seeding even, assuming that there aren't too many uh, pitfalls in the road on the way? 
Well, I mean, that definitely helps. It's a uh, quarter on win, and it will likely stay. And like the quarter on wins, the committee loves those. That cannot hurt. And going back to Mahaney, you obviously mentioned how is he doesn't seem like a freshman, but the thing is, like he looks like a freshman, like physical wise, like he's not some big body. But then you see him play, and like you don't think he's a freshman because of how good he is. Like in that second half. I know it was very late in the East Coast, so you were not watching, but it was still kind of late in Central Time, but I was watching, and he was he was just amazing. Like, he could really create his own shot. He was, Gonzaga was doing everything they could to stop him, and they really couldn't a lot of the times. Like, he can shoot, he can, he was really doing a good job creating his own shot, driving, like, some floaters, runners, fadeaway, stuff like that, and then Gonzaga would double team him and that would leave someone wide open and his he's obviously more of a scorer, but he's also a very good passer. He was able to find make some really good passes towards the end of the game to find um Saxon and I think might have been like Bowen one time or Dukas, but he was able to find some wide open layups and create some shots that were not scored and like what a great get for St. Mary's Mahaney basically grew up in St. Mary's backyard. He was like went to high school like right there, which is like definitely good for the Yales that they could keep him the hometown kid hometown because like obviously Mahaney was a little underrated as a prospect, but he still had like big time West Coast offers like I think Arizona offered him. And, like, just some of those, like, bigger schools. So he was not just some nobody as a prospect, even though he was definitely undervalued compared to how good he is now. So, yeah, I mean, I could talk about Aiden Mahaney for 30 minutes. (laughs) He is one of my favorite players to watch in the country, but you probably don't want to hear that much talk, although he is he's so good. But as soon as he has another game like that, we'll be able to bring up again next episode. So, (laughs) yeah, I cannot wait. But to the other major game on Saturday. Well, there were many major games on Saturday, but the other one uh, that drew the uh, biggest headlines uh, was Indiana. They beat Purdue. You called this one. I almost called this one. I was hesitant, but I did not. Um, Did you have a chance to watch this game? I did. I, I did get to see stretches. Of course, I was working down in Newark. It was... A previously ranked team. I know we touch on Charleston every week. It was Charleston and Newark against the Blue Hens. But I, this this game had I love the fact that it was a just brouhaha between two of the Big Ten's best teams. We talked about the Big Ten in prior episodes, and the Hoosiers came through for me on my on my upset pick. So I know you'll give us the rundown and let us know how they got there. Yeah, for sure. So I was not able to watch this game personally. I would have loved to watch it, but I was uh, I was not able to because of my conflicts but based on all the highlights and box scores that I've gathered is that Zach Eady like Purdue didn't obviously Indiana won this game but like Zach Eady we still have to talk about him he cemented himself like as the best player in the country with a 33.18 rebound performance he was just like he just silenced any doubts but that he's not the best player in the country, but Purdue, Purdue was Purdue uh, is ranked number one in this uh, week's new AP poll. But they 
definitely don't necessarily look like some runaway number one team, and that's because of who Purdue has outside of Edie, who um, Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer are very good freshman guards, but like I don't know how much you can really like place on them to win in March, especially or because you look at this game versus Indiana, Edie was amazing. He had yeah, he had thirty three points. He used fifteen and nineteen from the field. He did everything amazing, but outside of him, Smith, who has been a pretty consistent piece this year, had four points. He was one of eight from shooting, only two of four from free throw line. Um, Lawyer was the only other boilermaker in double digits besides Edie. He had 12 points, um, shot one of six from three. And, yeah, just um, just not the help you want for a number one team. I have a question for you, Dan. Do you still think Purdue can go on a Final Four national championship run despite their limited help? I do, and a lot of that confidence comes from Purdue's defense. I think Trace Jackson Davis, who we'll we'll get to as soon as possible in terms of centering on his game, but I'm confident that the way he plays for Indiana, I mean, Purdue's not going to see that that level of necessarily individual talent in the first maybe three rounds of the NCAA tournament. Now that's fast forwarding a bit, but and then even from there in general, I just think Purdue's body of work on defense. I mean, entering this game against the Hoosiers, the Boilermakers had held 24 consecutive opponents to 70 or fewer points. So this was an absolute rarity for Purdue to allow 50 points in the first half. I mean, that's how you know that Purdue was in hot water there by the time you get to the break to allow 50 in one half. And so that was well beyond the pace of what Purdue typically does on defense. Uh, Edie is being asked to produce a lot. Uh, and now he's capable of that. Now, at some point, it says, what is he being asked to do versus what, what is he just taking into his matters and he what is he controlling the game on his own initiative right so like that's all to his credit too but i do think that um purdue will get a good jolt from this i mean this is their second loss overall i do think that in the end purdue's gonna benefit from getting a not a wake-up call i don't think purdue is coasting necessarily like we talked about gonzaga coasting at times not coasting but just winning closer games in conference play before they were ultimately upset by loyola marymount this to me feels more like a situation where you get to the end of the, not the end of the season, but in the midpoint of the season, you say conference play trips you up at some point. And this is an Indiana team that's at least sweet 16 cap- capable and caliber. Yeah, for sure. And it's not like this is some like monumental upset. I think Indiana might've even been favored going into this game in the uh, betting market. So like Indiana is like, obviously we talked about how Purdue is like struggling and stuff like, are not struggling, but they lost, obviously, and could lead to some potential tournament struggles. But Indiana, like, they're very good. Um, Trace Jackson Davis had uh, 25 points, which was second in the whole game, obviously, behind Edie. He's been playing really good lately. Like, I think he would maybe be a first-team All-American at the moment. Like, Indiana has been a terror lately. They did lose to Maryland the other day at at Maryland, but I mean, that's that's an excusable loss. Maryland's pretty solid, and Indiana could have been looking a little bit ahead to the Purdue game, potentially, but, like, Maryland's still a a good team. Like, 
that's not a bad loss whatsoever. So uh, a lot of people had Indiana like top 10 preseason. I was never there. I was more of like uh, like 18-ish range, which I think they're close to that in AP poll now, but like more like 20, 15, more of that range, which honestly, I think they're like, they finally began to live up to that after some slow starts to Big Ten play. There were some questions like, are they even going to make the tournament? Yes, Indiana's going to make tournament. That's pretty secure now. They'll probably be like a four seed. And they still don't have Xavier Johnson back. I don't know if he's going to be back at all this season. Um, they did get Race Thompson Thompson back recently. Jalen Hutchifino has been playing great basketball. Um, Trey Galloway had a big game versus Purdue, um, 11 points, which is obviously nothing crazy, but I don't think he averages a ton of points in the season. He averages 7.5. So, so they got some good run out of him, but Xavier Johnson is a, a much better player than Galloway. So if he is back by March, Indiana is not a team I'd want to see because there's clicking on all cylinders right now. Obviously they've shown that they could be a top team in the country. It was at home, which Indiana has one of the best home courts in the country. But, like, Indiana is starting to really become the team they thought we thought they'd be. And it's mostly because of Trace Jackson Davis, who's just been amazing. I feel like the last few years he's kind of been hovering around the same, uh, the same, like, play, the same ability. Like, he's been good for the past few years, but this is the year where he's really started to break out and, like, he is he is like one of the premier players in college basketball. Any final thoughts on this game or either of these teams going forward? Yeah, for Indiana, Jackson Davis has been productive year over year. If he finishes this season averaging around 20 a game, it'll be his third straight season of scoring in that neighborhood uh, for Indiana. I'm glad you touched on Hood Shafino because I love a good situation in terms of points and assist average where Huchifino is averaging 12 and a half a game in terms of points and really dishing just over four assists a game to go with four rebounds. He's really a great do-it-all right by the side, or I should say in the backcourt behind Jackson Davis. And then Johnson's return, that'll be highly anticipated as well because he's just about averaging double figures. So that's going to, when that time, when that, when that time comes, Indiana will be even more of a force in the Big Ten tournament. Uh, I, I think, you know, when you put it on record that you can beat Purdue, I think you deserve to enter the conversation of, being a, a contender for the Big Ten title, right? Like, I have to think the Big Ten championship, that auto bid is in line. Uh, but regardless, that top four seed uh, situation is uh, a positive one for Indiana as well. I have to think that's trending up. And their Ken Palm, as we record tonight, is number 20 nationally. So they're doing good work in terms of metrics as well. Yeah, and going back to Purdue, I'm not totally sure I buy them as a championship contender. I certainly buy them as a number one seed, maybe even the number one team in the country right now. But... <clears throat> There's, I mean, they're not necessarily a one-man team. Like, they have some, like, Smith and Lawyer are good players. But I think too much of their success relies on Edie, who has been amazing, the best player in the country, without a doubt. But if something, like, happens, if he gets, I don't know who would stop him, but if he just doesn't have it one night, like, in a tournament, that could really hurt them more than just another team losing their best player that has better other rotation players because I think Purdue the um, 
their rotation players fit in great with Edie, but they're not like none of their players are stars, obviously, besides Edie. I think he he is obviously super important to them. But I mean, yeah, again, like I don't know how you would stop him necessarily, but if that happens somehow, then I think Purdue could really be in some trouble. Because it seems like March Madness has been a guards tournament as opposed to uh, big men, which the thing is big men are uh, seem to be some of the best players in college basketball, uh, more more great big men, big men and uh, guards, and obviously that's because of big men aren't really desired in the NBA. But that's a whole different topic, but I'm not sure I buy Purdue in that sense. But moving back to mid-major land, uh, with a little bit of Mountain West talk, do you think the Mountain West can get five bids in the tournament? It's a timely question because when you take a look at the way Nevada's played in terms of those home late Mountain West after dark primetime games, Nevada's been extraordinarily impressive nabbing some nice resume building wins. That's one team that I think you look at and you say, that's what gives the Mountain West optimism when you get games like that, where you get a quality team in Nevada taking out existing ranked teams. You just have teams beating up at each other, not to the point where they really defeat their own resumes, but they get to the stage where you have a viable stable of contenders. Right now, Lenardi has the Mountain West at four teams in its field to take a look at how the Mountain West standings shake up. San Diego State, ranked number 25 in the land, nine and two in conference play. So when you see San Diego State at the top of those pair of conference losses, each team has a minimum of two losses in conference play. Boise State with the three, Nevada with the three, Utah State with the three, all the way down to a really traditionally strong New Mexico Lobos program at six and four in Mountain West play. But how many teams could finish with 20 wins overall, Austin? I mean, that's what I look at. And New Mexico is knock on the door of that. Utah State, each of those programs just needs one more win to hit 20 overall. San Diego State and Boise State, Nevada in, in shouting distance as well in the top three of the league in terms of getting to 20 wins. So I do think when you add those all up, one, two, three, four, five, I think you're going to have five tournament-worthy teams by the time all is said and done. But I do think that a lot of it comes down to how do other leagues perform? So do we see the Pac-12 get to see its depth really round out a little bit? Right now, the Pac-12 in Lonardi's same bracketology with those three projected total bids. Uh, I do think that the Mountain West has a shot at this in part because we've, we've joked about the Atlantic 10 being down. And so they're like, there are only so many, like, not power mid-major leagues. How do I describe it? High-end mid-major leagues, you know, which is getting extra at-large bids. I call them extra at-large bids. They're, they're well-earned. It's just that, you know, you don't always see the Mountain West with to- a possible five total bids. So where do those come from? Well, part of that is another league or two being a bit down um, and making sure also that you maybe don't have uh, another WCC school other than Gonzaga or St. Mary's. So I think that the Mountain West, has to be pretty optimistic. I mean, the Big East and SEC, those other teams kind of around around neighboring their level of play, not level of play, but in terms of level of tournament teams, uh, they're, they're going to make life a little bit hard. But certainly this, I do think that I give a lot of credit to Nevada because Nevada in particular has been a team that has, even though it wasn't ranked at the time and still isn't, they're they're defending their home floor. And I've been watching those late night CBS SN games. I've been, I've been loving every second of them because it's been a great atmosphere. Nevada, is one of my favorite teams that's still uh, you know going to appear in those mid-major polls more so than the national AP polls thus far. But that they're just one example of a team in the Mountain West that's going to give them the optimism. But I it, it with it being early February still, 
I take a look at the Pac-12. I mean, who else in the Pac-12 standings could emerge? You have two ranked teams, UCLA, Arizona, those you know already ahead of time. I think about Utah uh, in the you know in fourth place there in the Pac-12, still still already five Pac-12 losses. So you could you could see a couple Mountain West teams in over Utah, just to use an example. Not that it's overly regionalized, you know, but I just like I think of the Pac-12 and I think of the Mountain West, and you're looking how do these conferences shape up. I think the Mountain West has a good claim to make. Yeah, I don't think uh, just on that Utah topic, I don't think they did any favors losing to Stanford at home the other day. And also uh, Gabe Madsen, I believe he's out like a month or so, four to six weeks. I feel like that's what Rustin tweeted. So that's a huge blow for a team that is was on the outside looking in in Utah. But back to the Mountain West, obviously you mentioned Nevada as a team that is winning some big home games. And they have beaten, in the past few weeks, they've beaten Utah State. New Mexico, San Diego State at home. They beat Boise State a little over a month ago at home. Earlier in the season, they beat Sam Houston, who has had a uh, impressive season overall at home. So they've definitely been able to get some resume boosting wins. And uh, Jared Lucas, the uh, Oregon State transfer, has been really good for the Wolfpack. He's he can really shoot the ball. He can really score the ball. And then you have Keenan Blackshear, formerly of FAU a few years ago. He's just a really do-it-all, bigger guard-type player who is, I think, um, I don't want to say he's like better than Grant Sherfield, but at the same time, I think he's almost more valuable to winning. And obviously that's shown this year, and Nevada's been good. But... Going to that five-bid conversation that I uh, mentioned, obviously right now, if the bracket was released, you'd probably think that uh, San Diego State, Boise State, and New Mexico would be pretty secure tournament teams and top nine, ten ranged teams. Also, San Diego State's a little higher, probably six or seven seed, New Mexico and Boise State. I've seen them; those teams around nine seeds in a lot of bracketologies. The one that's uh, uh, Nevada, where they would, um, again, I'm not a bracketologist, but the ones I've seen, a lot have them in, but barely, like in that playing game. And that brings up the fifth conversation, which the fifth team would be Utah State because their metrics are great. The one thing that is not great is their quality of wins so far. They they have uh, two losses in quadrant four, which will not help their cause. And they have zero quadrant one wins, which is not does not um shape out to be a, a very good at tournament resume but they're great at home they're have a very good home atmosphere plus like the elevation and all that stuff um they have two quadrant one games remaining at home one of which is uh versus san diego state in a few days we will talk about later boise state on uh, march 4th shapes out to be a quadrant one game at home who knows if that'll change by the time we get there but Utah State is really that wild card. Like, their metrics look good. 
they are uh, 32nd in net, 40th in Ken Palm. Um, so they, they're shown that they're, they are a um, tournament team based on just the metrics, but I don't think their wins really stock up. I They're not far from the field uh, necessarily, but they're also a little bit outside and they're they're a really good shooting team. Stephen Ashworth has been really good this year. Um yeah, I think they're the team that could really win some games. They really could use some wind down the stretch to put themselves in that uh on the right side of the bubble. And also there's a possibility for a bid stealer like like every conference, but uh, a few in the Mountain West that could possibly happen are UNLV. UNLV started out hot. They've kind of fallen off, but they still have the talent. They have, they're have they a tough defensive team that could cause problems. You got Colorado State, who has really struggled this year, but still have Isaiah Stevens, one of the best point guards in the country. Um, Let's see. San Jose State, I don't think they're really that caliber, but just just shout out to Tim Miles for a job he's done. Like San Diego or San Jose State, they've been like kind of competitive this year, which is something that that program has never really seen. Tim Miles is a great coach. Probably shouldn't have been fired in Nebraska looking back at it. But yeah, they're not uh I wouldn't put him in the same category of a bid stealer, but yeah, just shout out to the job Tim Miles has done this year. And you got Wyoming. Like, I don't know if uh, Graham EK is coming back at all this season, but if he does, that's obviously a team that earned an at large bid to the tournament last year. That if uh, he comes back, that could be, that could be a potential run today. Could you go wait? Um, Let's see. It looks like he has decided to redshirt this year. Well, that's another note. So, which if I was EK, I would do the same exact thing because he is—he's a very good player, and he would. Wyoming sucks this year, and he would play like ten games and waste a year of eligibility, which is. Wyoming is not good enough this year for him to do that. So, but next year EK is going to be back and he will be a very good player. Yeah, I did not know that that redshirt that he was officially redshirting. That's what I would have done if I were in his situation. But it appears that I did not see that uh, earlier this week or late last week, however you want to think about that. But I think the Mountain West ends up with four bids. I think Utah State just misses. Is that what you think as well, Dan? Utah State, one of three teams that's just one game back of San Diego State. Uh, Utah State's in that log jam, like we were saying, with Boise State and Nevada, eight and three in conference. So it's not out of the question that Utah State finds a way to the number one seed line in the Mountain West tournament. And then I feel pretty good about Utah State with Ashworth maybe finding a way to the final. And, and then in that case, <laughs> you do – I think San Diego State, depending on how things shake out, and if San Diego State misses the automatic bid, they're still an at-large lock, assuming there isn't a meltdown. And then you you do have a, a better path of five bids. But talk about a bid stealer from within the Mountain West. Maybe there's another conference that I was saying, the Pac-12 there, 
or their upsets in that conference tournament. So it's just so hard to hard to picture this far out. But I can't I can't handicap it that much. I have to get out on the limb a little bit and say I do think that there is a realistic shot at five bids. Uh, I think the image of the league's a strong one this season and has been uh, in a, for a good number of years. Yeah, I think five bids is in play, but four is probably the safe bet. Maybe even three. It depends what you think Nevada will do. I like Nevada uh, this year, so I'm going to leave them just in. Moving to some more uh, quick mid-major talk. Obviously, we've talked about Charleston a lot in this podcast. We don't need to talk about him a ton here, but they lost again to Drexel. This will probably be, maybe be the last time we talk about Charleston as they've officially kind of worked their way out of the at-large bid. They're not completely out, but like this Charleston team is not an at-large caliber team. They're more like the uh, good mid-major 12-13 seeds we see every year. Um, I guess, what are your quick thoughts on Charleston? Yeah, the Cougars got bitten by the CAA. Not bug, that makes it sound like an injury bug, but you play long enough in the CAA where a lot of teams really regress to the league mean. And Charleston's still above average, you know, not to imply that they're an average CAA team. They're far from that, well beyond that. But the Daskalakis Athletic Center in Philadelphia, home of Drexel, that's a hard place to go play. It's a small gym, but the intimate atmosphere makes it a pretty much fans and students are right on top of you there, the way it's laid out. Now, Charleston, if they were all they were cracked up to be in terms of top 20 status nationally, they would overpower that and come through with that. And it's still a team that's going to give a possible first-round opponent a, a, what should be a good game. You know, if Charleston comes up and shows up with its full reach a potential but yeah you see back-to-back losses in play I think it just takes all the air of that higher balloon that Pat Kelsey was riding with his guys and he certainly I think is in the driver's seat still for CEA coach of the year and but nationally to make a more national picture out of it I think Charleston's has played itself into you said perfectly I start to view them more as like your usual you know a strong auto bid in a 12-13 range but not the kind of team that we thought was going to crack a 10-10 or higher seed in any given quadrant. And it's not a guarantee that Charleston makes out of the CEA tournament because Hofstra, we talked about Estrada. I brought him up, you know, in a very early episode. Hofstra, I think, maybe has more star power even than Charleston. Now, Charleston's MO isn't star power, but we've already been through that in prior episodes. So I do think Hofstra versus Charleston would be fun to watch, you know, in March. I do think that they're going to be the last couple teams standing, but Charleston is either going to be like you said, you just said it best. You know, you're a, cla- a cla- not classic CA champ, but a really high-end conference champ from the CEA, from what we've seen in the post-VCU era in the CEA, or a good NIT, like a good good run NIT kind of squad. Kind of squad. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think they're still the best team in the conference um, when it comes down to it. But the conference tournament won't be easy for them. Obviously, Hofstra's good. Towson's there. UNCW is solid. I mean, they just lost to Drexel. So, I mean, who knows if that could happen again? Um, am I missing anyone? Nah, you touched on UNCW. UNCW is a good good one that's kind of lurking there. That's a, They got a good fan base that travels well to the conference tournament in D.C. So we'll see if they can make any noise. Yeah, I think it kind of hit on all of the top teams from that conference. But moving on. Another team that dropped a huge win streak this week was Florida Atlantic, who they had been, uh, let's see, what was their win streak? I think it was like 20, 
two. No, they had twenty-two wins. It was a it was a twenty-game win streak, but they drop it at the hands of UAB on the road. Unlike Charleston, I am not alarmed particularly about this loss. UAB had been struggling lately, but they were without Jelly Walker, who's one of the honestly one of the best guards in the country, and they got his services back for the FAU game. Who I don't think I wouldn't say he was hundred percent in that game, but. I would say he played some good minutes, and they would not have won that game without him, I think. Um, And then they followed that up with a 15-point win at Charlotte, which they got out to a uh, slow start, but really just dominated in the second half. So I'm not worried about FAU. I've watched them plenty of times this year. I still love FAU. I think they'll still be an at-large team if they don't win the Conference USA tournament. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Owls? It's hard to watch Charleston and FAU lose in what felt like similar quick succession because they've been fun fun stories to just watch and track. And, and not that you're openly rooting for them. I'm not, I, don't ha- I don't have a dog in the fight, but it, it's definitely been a nice ride for the Owls. And that, that will continue you're, to what you're alluding to, Austin. You know, you're not ready to call that dead by any means. Uh, UAB had such a good first half on offense and really overall 43 points in each half to beat Florida Atlantic. And you touched on Jelly Walker. Maybe he wasn't uh, in terms of an isolation game by himself in the 27 minutes he played. Maybe he wasn't totally 100%. He did drop 13 points, but the six assists by Walker for UAB really jumped out to me. So he was a really top end facilitator, distributing things, uh, drawing the attention of the FAU defense, but then finding the uh, opportunities to stem off of that. So for Florida Atlantic, I think they're going to be a popular pick once they make the tournament to advance you know, to the 16th. You know, going to be a double-digit seed maybe that is going to be a nice pick to make the Sweet 16. It's going to be a popular uh, favorite in terms of that. It's hard to call them a Cinderella because we've, we've had them on our radar, but it's gonna, they're definitely going to be uh, making those kind of stories. Because in the end, uh, UAB has, certainly has been a team that we've seen capable of having this kind of game in it. And they, similarly to St. Mary's, I think just kind of seized the chance of a home win, a big opportunity against a ranked opponent at home. And they, they get out in front by 13 at the half, withstand a 47%, 47%, 47-point charge by Florida Atlantic. So this is an FAU team that really rallied back as much as it could manage it. Um, but in the end, uh, despite the 18 by Nicholas Boyd, Backed up by 17 by John L. Davis. I mean, those 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 are good. Those are good two high end stores to have leading the way. Golden had 13. So it, it just was one of those nights where I think you tip your cap to Alabama Birmingham. Yeah, for sure. And a quick score update: Kansas has defeated Texas. That final score was 88 to 80. Uh, now atop the just a quick little <clears throat> um side note. The Big 12 standings, I think that moves. Wait, no, Texas is still in first and save played uh, one more game than anyone. But if Iowa State wins on Wednesday at West Virginia, which won't be an easy game at all, they will move into the uh, tie for first and also have the tie break. So just wanted to mention that real quick, um, some live reaction. But moving, um, kind of going back to that point about Charleston FAU, they had a long winning streaks that were snapped. Now the longest win streak in the country belongs to Eastern Washington, 
The Eagles have won 14 in a row. They have not lost since uh, December 13th. They have not lost a game in Big Sky play. Um, and, I mean, obviously they lost uh, Shante Leggins to Portland a few years ago. And he was a, he's a tremendous coach. But it looks like Eastern Washington is kind of back up to those levels that they were with Leggins under uh, David Riley which has just really been nice to see because I know that program does not have a uh, big budget basketball-wise, so I know that's why Leggins left because they weren't really uh, paying him much in Portland. Although Portland was a struggling program, they had the bigger check to offer at that time and better conference, but Eastern Washington is getting right back to work. Uh, even, like, they lost, like, everyone from those good teams, like the Groves, I think a few players went to Portland with leggings like um, Tyler Robertson and Mike Meadows. Um, yeah, and uh, Kim Macon, who just like kind of fell off the map, but he was on the Eastern Washington team. Now I'm kind of interested to see who else I'm forgetting about. Uh, Jacob Davison, who went to Cal Poly, and that kind of covers it. But basically, they're just like a wholly rebuilt team. Like they don't really have many leftovers. I mean, they do. They did have Steel Venters on that team, who's been great, but like he didn't play really on that. Uh, those uh, goody Eastern Washington teams that uh gave Kansas a scare in the tournament. But yeah, it's just been nice to see them succeed. And the second longest win streak in the country belongs to the St. Mary's Gales, who we have talked about plenty of times. Obviously, uh, included a big segment on them earlier in the podcast. Their win streak is at 12 games right now. And from the uh, mid-major talk, moving back into the high-major ranks, which most listeners are probably more familiar with. Obviously, the best conference in the country, the Big 12. Um, obviously, Kansas just knocked off Texas, which will be old news by the time you're listening to the podcast. But some headlines from the last week, Iowa State, they were up 23 in Lubbock at Texas Tech, and they lost that game, which is not ideal. That was Texas Tech's first Big 12 win. They have really been struggling this year. And then Iowa State on Saturday which is one of the few games that I was able to watch on Saturday. They just, like, handled Kansas. So, I mean, that's uh, an interesting week. But, I mean, road games are no joke. So, Iowa State was able to go 1-1 one one this week, 1-0 at home, 0-1 on the road. Um I guess, what are your thoughts on the Cyclones? Like, there's just kind of a tale of uh, two stories this week, like two different, completely different teams that we saw. So what are your uh, overall thoughts on this team? Definitely was really a Jekyll and Hyde week for Iowa State. Take a look at how everything played out in Lubbock. That's still a really good environment that the Red Raiders put on. Great home court. Hasn't been a season to remember, or it has been a forgettable season for Texas Tech, but the heart that they showed in that comeback, I mean, just to give Texas Tech its props for a second, that was really a gutsy, a gutsy win. But for Iowa State, 
they follow my rule that I usually apply to teams that get humiliated or really good. We know they're really good and they, they get a they get a stinging loss or a loss that is just they just do not play up to their potential. They, they fail to close out a game. They follow that up with a very convincing win against a strong opponent. So beating the Jayhawks in that convincing fashion, a 15-point win, holding the Kansas to 53 points on the afternoon in that one uh, most recently. That's that's Iowa State getting back on track to where I, I really do think that they're – I know they go back on the road. I just we just talked about losing at Texas Tech as a big favorite. Iowa State – I would have Iowa State favorite at West Virginia. I'll, I'm not seeing a line out for that game yet. It's going to be Wednesday this week. But West Virginia should be – should be in that ball game. ESPN's analytics have West Virginia as a favorite by 65.5% probability. I, I I like Iowa State in the spot, though. I, I think Iowa State gets refocused or continues to be focused following that Texas Tech loss at yeah. the top. Oh, I was just going to mention as well. I mean, just averaging 13 a game in Jaron Holmes. You have two, two real options in terms of scoring at the top. Uh, Jaron Holmes along with uh, Gabe Kalsher there as well. So it, it's, it's a team that, you know, they're going to be hard to defend whether they're at home or on the road. Give Texas Tech a lot of credit. Uh, it's not been lost to overlook. I mean, I've been behind Iowa State for a lot of the years, so I guess I'm a little bit more prepared to overlook, not overlook it, but or excuse it. But you do, you do maybe write it off in a sense because that the Kansas win just makes you. I think it really did heal a lot of those wounds for me. Yeah, and uh, just to note on the West Virginia game, West Virginia has like crazy good metrics compared to their uh, like conference record and stuff. So that's probably why they're favored. Um, I think they're actually like they're like 14th on Ken Palm, which is crazy considering you're like a bubble team. So they'll be favored against Iowa State. Um, yeah, I guess it, it's a sneaky, yeah. really good game. No, that, that Ken Palm point is mm-hmm. accurate. I mean, you get a top 20 Iowa State 19th in Ken Palm, so it's actually a game that it should be really high quality basketball. It's just the record doesn't match up for the Mountaineers, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, um, Kansas State, um, they went 0-2 this week, um, including a road loss to Kansas and a home loss to Texas. Both games are excusable. Uh, the Texas one at home, that's when you really wanted. You probably knew you were never going to win that game at Kansas. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i not worried at all about uh, K-State. Um, I guess you just have any thoughts on them, like... They're still a fine team, just maybe not as good as like a top five team, but like they're still fine. It was, I was, we were so ready to. I mean, I probably, there probably is sound bite of me calling them pushing top five, right? When Kansas State was really peaking, not that they have peaked. I mean, I just, when they were really ascending here this season, but the observation that you made here in our episode notes, Austin, it's a really good point. The fact that Kansas State, they go 0 for 2 in this recent run with those L's to Kansas and Texas, but they ultimately have split both of those series. So it's going to be really hard to sweep either of those teams in the Big 12. The Big 12, the whole story of the year is, you know, two-thirds of the league is ranked. So how many of these teams are actually going to sweep each other, right? Like it just, the math isn't working out that way. So I do think that uh, when you walk away with the split and you take a zoom out or take a wide view of the season for Kansas State, sure, it's not ideal at all to be dropping a couple games in a row. At the same time, though, uh, it you 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 split you went one and one against uh, fellow top twenty five teams who are going to be there uh, in the round of thirty two at a minimum. So it it it's 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 going to be all right. Tell Alex Schmidt it's going to be okay. Our buddy Alex will tell him he can not necessarily rest easy because the Phillips sixty six or whatever it is tournament they're still calling it that uh, the Big Twelve tourney that that's going to be a 
that's gonna the Big Twelve tournament is gonna feel like a mini NCAA tournament, I think, which I'm thrilled about. But uh, Kansas State should be in the thick of that. Yeah, and speaking about the Big Twelve tournament, I am uh, looking to possibly make an appearance at that. Which, uh, if that ends up working out, is something I'm really excited to see, especially see all those teams play. That's just yeah, like you said, like it's kind of a mini NCAA tournament. All those teams are so good. And back to the thought about splitting series and stuff. Kansas had or Kansas State, they have TCU tomorrow in the Octagon of Doom. TCU uh, killed them their first game. That is a series they will want to split because they do not want to go 0 2. If they lose that game, they have lost four out of their last five. They would lose four out of five, which is not ideal, and three straight. Which is not ideal at all. Um, obviously, I still think they will. I still think they'll win that game. TCU is really banged up right now, with Miles and uh, Lampkin. Um, yeah, uh, like even if they were to drop that game, I'm still not really worried. I feel like I kind of know what Casey is at this point, and barring anything like super crazy, like I I kind of know how good they are. I think they're probably around like. A, top 15 maybe like top 20 uh anywhere in the 10 to 20 range like depending uh i could see fit so i mean they will be fine and their uh big 12 schedule should uh prepare them to play tough games in march obviously they won a number of overtime games this year which will certainly um help them prepare for a close game experiences in March, uh, some other Big 12 storylines. Baylor, Jonathan Chama Chachua, who is uh, one of the most fun names to say in the college basketball landscape. He is back. He had a knee injury that was just terrible almost a year ago to date, uh, a little less than a year ago, about 51 weeks or so. But it's just great to see him back on the uh, court and playing pretty good. Um the last, uh, like, there were some speculations on, like, whether he'd ever play again. Like, it was not a good injury. But he actually played well against in a uh, win over Texas Tech. He played uh, 14 minutes, scored eight points, two of two from three, four rebounds. Obviously, he's not, um, I don't know, is he at 100%? Probably not quite uh, where he was back at his, like, peak. But Baylor is a team that's been playing really good lately. How important is uh, JTT's return to uh, Baylor's ceiling in March? It's it's huge. I, I think it's huge for morale. Like, just to see that, that's pretty inspirational to work your way back. I mean, think about the rehab. I mean, it, it all the 51 weeks ago, it, it, that's pretty much, you know, since the injury occurred, I'm sure it's just been dedication to the rehab. That's 51 weeks of just recovery, working with Baylor staff, working on your own time, getting your body in a position to hit the floor and play well, like you touched on, to, to, to shoot as well as he did from the field, to contribute rebounds. I mean, if once you're on the floor, you you know, you want to be there for, for your teammates. And actually, it's not just a it's not just a cameo. You know, <laughs> JTT is going to hold himself to that high standard. But eight points on, on two three-pointers as well, getting four boards, you know, just to go back through that line score. It is, I think it's even more than just about the production. I just think it's about, the symbolism of you know what that means to his teammates and and now that's all kind of come to uh, a culmination of getting back on the court so I do think that in such a crowded Big 12 race we maybe lost sight at times of Baylor this is a team that 
doesn't hasn't been talked about as much, partly because of the situation with not having JTT for the extended period of time. And all the while, Baylor has been now just over 500 in Big 12 play. That's six and four overall mark, but still pushing 20 wins overall. Uh, very much, I think, almost reminds me of the Big 12's equivalent of Utah State, or just like I view as a wild card. Like I'm not totally sure what I'm going to see or what you'll see in the, at the Big 12 tournament possibly. But uh, I, I do like that. Hey, that's just one more team that's closer to full strength because you want to see in March. I, I just can't wait for these top, really not just six, but seven and eight Big 12 squads to go at it. Yeah, well, uh, personally, I almost kind of disagree with your um, thing, uh, Baylor being the Utah State of the Big 12. Because I think Baylor is uh, very legit. And uh, like the past few weeks, they've beaten Kansas. Uh, they've beaten Arkansas. They since uh, since they lost in overtime to K State, they've only dropped one game, which was almost a month ago, January seventh. They have won um seven games in that stretch and only lost one at Texas. So, I think Baylor. Uh, personally, I think they're a very legit team. They've been playing great basketball lately, even though they uh had a few uh bad results earlier in the season. I think they have proven that they are a legit team. Obviously, like, even though I say bad results and, like, losses to Marquette where they got killed, they also beat UCLA and, and Gonzaga and the non-con, both neutral. So I think Baylor is the real deal. Um, Their defense uh worries me a little bit. They're, it's not bad by any means, but it's not a top-tier defense. Although Baylor did win the tournament with uh, a defense that was not exactly top tier when they won it. I think it was 44th on Ken Palm going into the tournament. So that's I'm just a little worried. That's I think it's like 75th range last time I checked. But Baylor is good, and I think they're like kind of establishing themselves as the top 10 team. Even though like they've had a, they had some rough stretches, they fell at the rankings. But I think they are back. Obviously, JTT's back. That will not hurt them. That will provide some very uh, helpful front court help. Um, front court depth. Are, yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but those resume highlights are important to point out. Like Baylor's not a team that's coming out of complete nowhere. We probably haven't talked about them enough, even on this show at times. Um, I, I, they, they're a proven commodity in some sense. Like I see the quality wins, but it, it, you touched on the defense. That's what's it for me. Like, I just, I guess there's some other shootout teams that I favored over Baylor. And it's like, well, pick a side. Like, are you pro shootout teams or anti shootout teams? Like I probably need to work on that and see what I really want to value in terms of okay, breaking down all these numbers. But I mean, Baylor, the second to last scoring defense in the big 12. They, now, once you get enough big 12 games under your belt, you're going to get that scoring points allowed average. It's going to inflate a little bit. You're just facing offenses night in, night out. who are going to give you so many headaches on defense. But I mean, Baylor is averaging nearly 70 points a game allowed. I just, I don't, I don't know. Like that to me puts a certain kind of ceiling on how far we'll see Baylor, but the offense is there. So uh, it's kind of the reverse of Tennessee, who I know we'll talk about when we get to the uh, the, the SEC portion of things. Yeah, in conference games, Baylor has the second-worst defense behind Texas Tech, who's just been awful in Big 12 play. But on the contrary, they've had the best offense in the uh, conference, and it's not necessarily super close between them and Iowa State, 
who is second in that uh, metric, which is actually kind of surprising because Iowa State is, um, I believe, their eighth in uh, Ken Palm offense in the Big 12 if you just take the whole season, their uh, adjusted offense of efficiency into account. But in uh, Big 12 conference, only play their second. But that's not my point. Baylor has is great offensively. A little bit defensive worries, but I'm not super worried. They're not like terrible on defense, and they, yeah, they look good uh, on the glass too. Like when you look at the rebounding stats, I, I was expecting to see honestly not this level of rebounding stats. But Baylor leads the Big Twelve in offensive rebounds per game as a team, just under thirteen boards on the offensive glass per contest. So they're giving themselves second chances too for what's already a really potent offense. So it, I guess it is a little bit of a nitpick. You know, I'm coming around on them as I look more and more into 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 the resume. It's just add another Big Twelve team to the list, right? Yeah, another uh, Big 12 note. Oklahoma, they suck now. They killed Alabama last uh, weekend, and then they lost to Oklahoma State um, at home uh, by double digits. It was a 10-point game, and then they lost uh, at West Virginia by 32. Oklahoma's not making a tournament. I feel like after uh, this week, we can kind of conclude that even though the Alabama game gave us some hope that they might like surge back in um, Oklahoma state. On the other hand, they've uh, been playing well lately. They obviously beat Oklahoma, which I mean, even though we're saying Oklahoma sucks, it's still a decent win when it comes down to their recent wins. And they also beat TCU, obviously a shorthanded TCU, but I'm not sure if the committee is going to look at that and who uh, they were missing every game. So, yeah, Oklahoma State's been playing good. Oklahoma has not. Moving on to the SEC. Um, the first thing that I want to touch on is Van- er, Alabama. They beat Vanderbilt by 57 on uh, Tuesday. When I saw this score, it was just crazy because personally on Tuesday, I was dialed in on the Kansas-Kansas State game. So... I was not focused on um, Alabama and Vanderbilt, but fifty-seven points, like that's insane. Like I know, I know Vanderbilt is not a good team uh, when it comes down to the SEC, but like they're not, they're much better than like South Carolina that caliber. So <laughs> Alabama, the, I I don't even know what to say about this. It's just crazy. That's more than they beat Vanderbilt them by football. Which I was is about a, to bring up football. Yeah, yes. that, that got that that stat got brought up plenty of times. Yeah, following that game, so well, it's it's. I think Alabama, you know, they make it. They they added some style points to that win. Is is I think one of the biggest things you can take away is Alabama mm-hmm. is looking to make a point. We've seen, you know, Alabama was in that conversation. I remember you and I had about who when we had a group of four teams who might be the number one, actually that best team in the country. And Alabama was in the discussion, and when you end up with seeing a team like Vandy in your conference schedule. If you're going to stay in that mix, sometimes you want to make a bigger point, and uh, they they were the Crimson Tide were not shy about doing that. Yeah, well, beating Vanderbilt at 57 will certainly not hurt uh, anyone's perspective on them. Certainly won't hurt the metrics, although it will definitely. Uh, I don't think that played out very good for Vanderbilt's metrics. But uh, moving on to uh, some more teams in the SEC, uh, Florida kind of just uh, they kind of dominated Tennessee. Uh, the other day, 
Um, Florida has is a team that's kind of been playing a little bit better lately. Um, they did lose at Kentucky, which is not a bad loss at all. But they've been getting some wins, uh, including a win over Tennessee, who was number one in Ken Palm at the time. Um, uh, Castleton had a big game. He had uh, 20 points, nine rebounds. Um, yeah, obviously Tennessee is kind of a hard team to play against with the uh, defensive style that they play. Amazing defense. But... Florida was just able to get it done, and uh, Florida's still uh, just on the outside looking into the tournament, I would say, as of now. But this one did certainly not hurt at all. Um, I think Florida's kind of starting to play a little bit better. They obviously struggled to start the season. Um, I guess, do you have any main takeaways following this game? Important home win for the Gators. I mean, I perceive it almost as a long, my Southeast geography is amazing, but it's just a bit of a longer trip, I'd say, for the Vols. And how about how about Florida's defense, 21 points allowed to Tennessee in the first half? I know really the, the, the qualm we've had all along with Tennessee is that offense. But all at the same time, it's a great upset, and it's one of those wins that's going to be a key, and a bargaining chip's the wrong phrase, but definitely a key argument helper for Florida as you're on that edge, that precipice of the uh, bracket picture. So, no, I think you captured it well, and that's just what I would add is uh, in the big picture, uh, it doesn't hit the – you know, you know, it was, these road – we bring up every episode, here are all the ranked teams who lost on the road in conference play. It's just so hard to win in league against the opponents who know you so well on the road that uh, it's. It, I know you and I have a certain threshold of tolerance for that before you hit the panic button. Yeah. So talking about Tennessee a little – I'm not like super worried on them from national perspective, but I don't know if you remember, but a few weeks ago I was like, like I was, I was uh, saying that Tennessee is good, but I'm not buying them as like a true national title contender. And I think this game just kind of cements why is that their offense is, I mean, Florida, not to take away anything from Florida, Florida has one of the top defenses in the country, not up to Tennessee's uh, level uh per the numbers but florida still has an amazing defense but this is why i just can't be fully in on tennessee when they do things like this and they're um then they obviously played against auburn we can talk about that game now they beat auburn but that game was just that was a defensive showdown i guess you can want you can call it that it was a terrible offensive performance you could also call it that um, so they've just, uh, let's see, what was the final score of that game? It was, I think it was like 46 to 43. That's what I had. And yep. yeah, I was not able to watch that game and I'm kind of glad I was not able to watch that <laughs> game. It was both teams shot, uh, 35.7% from the field in that game. And like, even though they won, that's not really like making me feel better about, Tennessee like they won because they have an amazing defense like we've already known they have an amazing defense but that that just shows me their offense is almost worse than I thought um because yeah, still yeah. 60th in offensive efficiency on Kempom that's yeah and that's that's today. exactly why I am worried about them like Obviously, their defense is amazing, but if like they get into a team that they just 
have troubles with. I don't know if they're like, I don't know if that their offense will be good enough to uh, just really do anything. Like an example I thought of this morning that could, uh, is, uh, do you remember when Loyola played Illinois in the round of 32 in a tournament? They Loyola was a very, uh, I think, they were uh, under-seeded. They should have probably been higher than eight seed, but uh, they were a mid-major team, so Missouri Valley, whatever. Um, but Loyola, Illinois' defense, it was a very good defense that year. Not up to the caliber of Tennessee this year, but they could just, Illinois just couldn't really stop Loyola. Or, no, or, yeah, I said that right. Um, and, like, if, like, Illinois, like, they proved the whole season they were, like, a top team in the country, which I feel like Tennessee has done, to be fair, to the Vols. But if they get into a game like that where, like, they just are helpless, and that's what I worry about Tennessee. And, like, obviously we saw it last year. They lost to Michigan in the round of 32 with a very good team uh, as well. But... I just worry that they'll get into a situation where they're kind of they're almost kind of overwhelmed, or like the opponent starts making some shots and like, well, our defense isn't working. Like, what are we supposed to do? Like, their offense has, um, their offense has looked good at times this season, but the past few games has definitely not helped my view of how good their offense is. So, definitely have some concerns about. Tennessee and um I guess do you have any final thoughts about the Vols? Yeah, my my main conclusion on them is that they're a bit matchup dependent in the NCAA tournament and more than I think I'm we're used to saying about most top five AP teams, like most top five AP teams year to year, you feel pretty good about them on any given Saturday or you know, whenever you're getting the NCAA tournament going. But with Tennessee, it's a question of are they gonna run into a team that is a bit of a different makeup that forces Tennessee out of a lower scoring game. Yeah, that will be something to monitor how Tennessee's uh, path to the final four hypothetically would line up when the brackets come out in, uh, was it like five weeks at this point? But it's, college basketball season is going way too fast. But uh, another SEC topic is uh, Kentucky just continues to do what they have to do. Obviously, um, obviously they've gotten their fair share of headlines for disappointing earlier in the season, but um, the past few weeks they've just they haven't really slipped up. Um, they haven't won any huge games, but they also haven't lost any games that are detrimental. Like they beat Florida the other day at home, like that's a solid win. Um, but a loss definitely. A loss wouldn't have been catastrophic, but it's also a loss that might have left them on that, like, could leave them on the very outside of the tournament when the uh, field is all set and done. I feel like Kentucky is just barely on the inside of the field right now. But obviously, as I said, they haven't had, besides the Kansas game, they haven't had any huge chances to go back into, um, like, cement a great win and they play i mean they'll have chances going forward they play arkansas twice they play one tomorrow and one on march 4th um 
Obviously, they play road and home. They play Tennessee at home. They obviously beat Tennessee on the road. We'll see if they can sweep. Uh, they play Florida on the road. A win there would be huge. They play Auburn at home. Also another game that could really boost their resume. And then they play uh, Mississippi State, Georgia. Um, they played both those teams in the road, which are teams you do not want to lose to because uh, especially Mississippi State is like not a terrible team. Like They could give you some fits, especially with their defense. Uh, that's a game that you'll really want to see Kentucky win if you're a Kentucky fan. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, they kind of control their own, uh, destiny with the schedule that they have and the opponents they have on the board from now on, I guess I don't want to uh, spend too much time talking about Kentucky because they're still a bubble team, but do you have any thoughts uh, about BBN? In the end, steady as she goes up to this point in, since we last discussed them, they've been evening out and now you you are i was gonna you know look at maybe those games too but you you highlighted the schedule that's upcoming and the opportunities that lie ahead i think kentucky would do pretty well to split those games uh i think i i was trying to count them up it may not have come out to an even number in terms of those higher higher level marquee sec games they have left but uh, i i think even florida i like i'm curious to see how florida and kentucky really compare once again yeah because that florida kentucky game could be like a battle for that could really uh, come back into play when those teams are being called or not being called on Selection Sunday. So that will be a game to watch out for, but that game is not for a few weeks. Uh, the return to trip to Florida is on Wednesday, February 22nd. And now moving on to our last uh, conference of headlines that we're going to be talking about in this episode the acc has been has not been a great um power conference this season but past week has uh, garnered some headlines that we will talk about and i wrote down here that duke beats north carolina in the battle of the mid and like this was honestly the least i've cared about a duke north carolina game like I remember a few years ago, um, Duke was really Duke was good and North Carolina was bad. Um, I believe that was one of the buzzer beater by Duke that game. Um, but like, I just, I just didn't really care about this game. To be completely honest, like, neither team is that good, and like, I mean, they'll both be like eight seeds at this point, maybe like a little higher, a little lower for either of the teams, but. Like, um, I just was not at all invested into this game. Like, it's Hubert Davis and John Shire. It's just not the same. Um, I mean, if these if those teams were like as good as they were supposed to be, this would be a great game that I'd be excited for. But honestly, I just couldn't really get behind this game. But going to the actual results of the game, Duke was able to pull out the home win by uh. What was it? By five points, I believe it was. Was it 62, 63 57? Um, Derek Lively, who was the number one recruit in the country uh, on some recruiting sites, he has really struggled for most of the season. Does not look like a number one recruit in the country at all, but showed some, um, showed very, 
showed how impactful he can be in a North Carolina game. He was the best player on the floor, and he only scored four points, which is definitely noteworthy. He had um, 14 rebounds, nine of those defensive, five offensive, and eight blocks, which is it's an amazing defensive game. That's that's just showing kind of what he can bring to you um, as a team. And Duke, uh, and then they did not get a uh, very good performance out of the Blue Devils tonight. They got killed by Miami uh, just a few hours ago before we started recording the podcast. So then they kind of just kind of fell back to uh, sea level after the huge rivalry win. So uh, any thoughts about Duke, North Carolina? I, I was going to touch on the head coaching situation, like not that John Shire and Hubert Davis aren't going to push these programs into back into their real perch, not only atop the ACC or in that neighborhood, but in the thick of things nationally. I mean, now this year, just with the way they're situated in the big picture, we the fact that we have the Duke-UNC game in the back half of the show as the last part of the uh, Power Five kind of run through. I mean, that, that says a lot. Now, this was a good game. Uh, I think these teams, you know, when you look at just Carolina versus Duke this year, they they compete against each other in a close match fashion. But yeah, I it, I think it was more about this was a chance to see lively, play that lively defense to use that. I couldn't resist and using that. But eight blocks is an insane, uh, insane number to see uh, in a game that's heated as the UNC Duke rivalry. So I, I love to see that. I love to see that the fan bases were into it. Uh, it certainly comes no surprise, but yeah, I do think that each of these rosters is in a bit of a transitional year, not, not, not to the point where they're not going to be better than seven or eight out of 10 teams. You pick out of all division one, but that's, that's still, that's, that's basically the bare, that's the basement for each of these programs. So there is the, we have such high expectations for this game that it, it didn't move the needle as much as it has uh, before. No, definitely not. And um, North Carolina earlier this week lost to Pitt, which is a huge one for Pitt and not a good loss for North Carolina. Um, there was, um, I saw a lot of people arguing about the uh, foul identity game. I don't know if you saw it, but North Carolina, they, uh, Caleb Love was kind of fouled on that last shot, but it was after the buzzer, so it, it didn't matter. I saw a lot of, um, North Carolina fans are being mad about that. Like, just just it's, look at the clock. The yeah, game already yeah. ended. The game like, is the, over. The, yeah, that that doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> yes, he was fouled, but they're not going to call fouls that happened after the buzzer. Like, that game was over. Um, good one for Pitt, who is now nine and three in the ACC. I want to say, let me check that real quick. Um. Let's see. Pitt is nine and three in ACC. What does their upcoming schedule look like? Well, they have some bad teams coming up. They better not lose Louisville, Florida State, or Boston College in the next three games, which would be detrimental to tournament chances. But Pitt is, I think, they're playing themselves into the tournament right now. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's all we have to say. Um. Sp- uh, speaking about teams in that pit range that have good ACC records, Clemson, who is still in first in the ACC, despite a 0-2 week, which uh, included losses to Boston College and Miami. Miami lost at home. That was one you really wanted that you can live with. The Boston College loss, that was one you probably cannot live with. Um, even though Clemson is first in the ACC standings-wise, 
I think they're like a bubble team and obviously they were in the top 25 recently. I think they've kind of re- kind of start are starting to regress back into the team that they actually are, which is, is still a fine team, but I think that just it showed they're not a top 25 team this week. Any thoughts about uh Clemson or Pitt? Yeah, Pitt, I'm starting to take Pitt a little more seriously, I have to be honest. I do think being ninth during the ACC, despite how you described it being a little more hovering towards the median in terms of how the conferences shake out, uh, that's still something to take note of for the Panthers. And the it's a soft upcoming schedule. Not that they can't, those can't turn into landmines. Um, and then for Clemson, uh, I it's so tempting to make this. I, <laughs> you don't want Clemson's bubble to burst. Don't turn out. Don't turn out like Brevin Galloway. I'll make I'll make that since Brevin Galloway was joking about it himself. I'll let people research the he Brevin brought it up. So I'm just gonna I not making light of it. Very serious situation <laughs> injury spot there for him. But no, glad he he's he sounds like he's coming around uh, and recovering for that. But no, I think yeah, I just that's my that's my one wise crack to crack about Clemson there. But uh, yeah, the Clemson's really the epitome of the way the ACC looks this year, which is it's such a different vibe without Duke or UNC being in a position to make it uh, the game that we talked about at the top of the show. Like once again, it just fades to the background of our program today. And it was a little bit of a passing headline. Yeah. Um, going on that Brevin Galloway note, I saw that he was able to make it into an NIL deal and uh, sell some shirts that say the nutty professor on it, which I mean, if hey, you can, that would make uh, me feel better too. If I can make money <laughs> off the whole thing, that yeah, would I make mean, me feel better too. I mean, I don't, yeah, I think he's definitely bringing in some solid money from his uh, medical emergency, which uh, is not the worst thing when it comes down to it. And uh, de- definitely on that situation, definitely glad to hear that um, everything worked out fine with him. But yeah, going back to uh, Clemson, they're, they've kind of played themselves into trouble. Um, let me check out who they have on their upcoming schedule. They have... North Carolina away on Saturday. That is a game they obviously they don't need to win it, but that would be a huge win. And then, yeah, that's kind of their. Uh, they have. Uh, they can't lose Syracuse at home. Uh, NC State win on the road would be nice, and they just have to beat up on the scraps of the conference. And one of these scraps of the conference, Louisville, who is the the worst team in the conference, um, they won a game. They beat Georgia Tech, who has not won since they somehow beat Miami on January fourth. But Louisville won a game. Uh, Georgia Tech sucks, so like I'm not even surprised that they won this game. But like still, like it's pretty uh, monumental that uh, Louisville finally won a conference game. Obviously, uh, last week on the podcast. I believe it was last week we had to mention that Georgetown, they won a Big East game. They beat DePaul. Like, that was probably the game that, like, you'd think they'd win if they were to win a game, and they did. And that's kind of the same situation we have here. Um, I, I think we all want to see Louisville and Georgetown go at it. I mean, can we get that set up somehow? Like that, uh, I don't be, know if... Uh, would that be a good game? You don't think that would be a good game? I mean, that would be a good game, but I don't know if that would, that would, it would be a close game, I think. I don't know if it would be a, uh, if there would be a very uh, entertaining and game that I'd want to watch. That could be like, that would be like punishment. (laughs) 
it's a sickos committee style game let's put it that way yeah it's uh um that's not something i'd be interested in watching <laughs> um but moving on that is all the headlines we covered we will move to some quick game previews of the best games this week. There are obviously tons of great games, but we have narrowed it down to some of the best. And Tuesday, we have two, um, which will be uh, probably, you might be listening to this podcast on Tuesday. We are currently recording this on Monday night, as we have referenced by some of the games that have just happened. But Marquette at UConn. You know, I think I'm going with Marquette in this game. Um, even though it's at UConn, UConn still has a good metrics. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going with Marquette. They have been playing very well lately, and I think this one would be huge. It would establish their first major win away from home. Um, yeah, I got Marquette in this game. I'm not be surprised if UConn wins, but I will stick with the Golden Eagles. Who do you have winning this game? I remember I took Xavier in stores a week or maybe a couple weeks ago now, and it paid off for me, if my memory serves. Marquette being a top 10 Ken Palm team, very tempting. But I just think UConn's going to, for some reason, something's telling me that the Huskies are going to seize the call at home this time. I'm not going to pick against a home team twice in a row, a home team that I respect. So honestly, for that reason, for that irrational reason, I'm going to go with UConn. Yeah, that was kind of the reason I uh, chose UConn against Xavier last week, and it backfired for me. UConn will probably win, and it will backfire for me picking against him, but I am sticking with Marquette. Um, We also have TCU playing at K-State on Tuesday. I predict K-State to get a big revenge game. I think they can honestly win this game comfortably. I don't think Mike Miles or Eddie Lampkin will be playing for the Horn Frogs. K-State will be mad. They don't want to lose three straight. They don't want to lose four of their last five. If they drop this game, they will. This is a game that Kansas State will win in the Octagon of Doom, also avenging their recent home loss to Texas. Cats. Yep. TCU is not healthy enough for my taste. Yep. Even if TCU was fully healthy... I might still be going with Kansas State, but there's no chance that I will be going with TCU under the current circumstances of this game. Wednesday, San Diego State plays at Utah State. We talked a lot about in Mountain West earlier in this episode. I am rolling with Utah State at home. They need this win. It would be a Q1 win for them. They need this win for uh, March Madness boosting. I am going with the Aggies in a great home environment. This is a tough one for me. When I take a closer look at Utah State and that adjusted defensive efficiency in Ken Palm, 129th nationally. I mean, I have to double check myself that I'm seeing that right, but that is, I know we went over the Aggies. I'm going to go with San Diego State here. I just think San Diego State's going to take some exception to possibly being not overlooked, but just maybe counted out a bit on, on the road on a weeknight. Uh, but this is one. This is one of the on one of those great Mountain West games. Not Nevada this time. I was saying Nevada's praises, but no, this is going to be a good one. And I, I'm going to take the plunge with SDSU this time. Yeah, for sure. And obviously, if Utah State would win, as I mentioned, that would be huge for resume boosting. But also, like San Diego State, this would be a very comfortable 
win that would fall very comfortably inside the Q1, um, the Quadrant 1. And this would be a, a big win if they were able to pull it off. I think Utah State is uh, more on the line here. So that's why I am going with them. But that's another game I could see going both ways. Saturday, we also have a few good games to mention. And the two that we will stick with are uh, UConn at Creighton and Alabama at Auburn. UConn at Creighton. I have Creighton. I um, I think they've been playing very well lately. They haven't lost in, uh, I think they have like a six-game winning streak going right now. Um, I guess they also play at um, Seton Hall in a few days, so that will either be a seven-game win streak or a zero-game win streak at that point. But I think Creighton will pull off the win. They obviously killed Xavier at home another day. That home crowd in Omaha is... I am a bias, but I think it is one of the most underrated in the country and up there towards the uh, top. Not quite to the level of like Kansas, Iowa State, but it's definitely up there for sure. I am I'm going with Creighton in this one. You're gonna love my pick because I like the Blue Jays as well. This I don't want to call it a sneaky good game, but I do think that they're gonna get. I mean, that Iron Bowl and the Hartwood Alabama Auburn is gonna get a lot of love as it should. I think for the purposes of the SEC, but this. Creighton, you talk about having a lot on the line. I like that phrase in February, and that's the case for Creighton. Connecticut is still very highly ranked in Ken Palm, top eight in Ken Palm. So I think Creighton can kind of pull them back down to sea level to steal your phrase. Yeah, for sure. And uh, going back to the other uh, marquee matchup on Saturday, which will be Alabama-Auburn. I'm rolling with Alabama here, but it's a rivalry game. Auburn has been struggling a little lately. They might need this uh, win to boost them back into uh, the top 25 if they are uh, super motivated to do that. I am rolling with Alabama, but yeah, rivalry road game, things get crazy. I would not be surprised if Auburn pulls off the upset, but I'm rolling with Alabama still. Earlier in the week, Alabama does have to deal with Florida uh, several days before. That could get interesting, I think, if... Florida takes some gas out of Alabama. You know, that could be a game that drains them a bit before having to go on the road to Auburn. So not knowing that outcome yet, I'll stick with Alabama just because I think overall they just have more punch and are probably more talented. Just sounds like a too basic of a way of saying it. Well, I mean, Um, they are more talented. Talent talent (laughs) travels, talent travels. So I'll not begrudgingly take the road team, but it just seems like I took Indiana over Purdue in this kind of spot and it paid off for me. In a, you know, a home, a home team beating a higher-ranked team. But I'm just not willing to do it here. I mean, I'll, I'll regret this for the whole week, but I'm, I'm not going to do it here. I'm going I'm to stick with Alabama because I'm remembering your argument for them on an earlier episode in terms of being in the mix. for. I think you I think you made the pitch for Alabama, right, to be in that top that top team mix. So yeah, I'm going yeah. to heed that here. Yeah, Um. obviously you mentioned the Florida game. That is a home game for Alabama, which is why I'm not super concerned if that was a road game. Um. Let's see, I don't think they played Florida on the road this year, or they do not play Florida on the road all year. If that was a road game, I'd be a little worried, but I'm not worried um, about their ability to beat Florida at home. So that, um, yeah, I'd also pick Alabama in that game. It's obviously um, not a huge 
um, game of the week, so that would not be in our projection predictions. But I would pick Alabama that game pretty comfortably. Um, well, I guess with that note, we have covered all the topics. Another uh, long-ish episode. I guess you have any final thoughts before we release this episode to the public? Well, I'm burning the midnight oil here on the East Coast, but I think it's well worth it. In the end, these teams across the country are giving us a lot to react to. Uh, I think there's always – we had Bray, we had Beheim in the ACC. Who's going to be next to be a head coach who puts himself in the headlines for one reason or another? I'm sure that's going to be coming before too long here and give us more to chew on. But the actual basketball on the floor has been phenomenal. And uh, I really am excited about the fact that we really have St. Mary's emerging in the West Coast Conference. We talked about it off the top. Edie versus Jackson Davis in the Big Ten is is a wonderful head-to-head. And then you go all the way back back out west, and the Mountain West has four or five tourney teams. So it was a great show. Yeah, and um, do you think we will get around to our uh, mid-major extravaganza this week? Hope so. Hope so. We're, we're yeah, going to work well, that out. I know you and I will be in talks. I know that obviously the semester started over this way in uh, in Delhi, so as we like to call it. So definitely going to be our schedules. We'll look them line up. And uh, yeah, the conferences we haven't talked about as much, we'll give a big big round of uh, discussion to here. The one big leagues or, or that kind of ballpark, we'll, we'll, we'll run right through them in a couple good couple good uh, sound bites. Yeah, we will try to get it out this week. No guarantees, but we will keep you posted on our social medias, which again, if you have not dropped a follow, we would appreciate the follow um, at Hoopscoop Media, Instagram, Twitter. Um, that's all we have right now. Um, maybe a YouTube slash TikTok to come soon. Um, we've been working on putting more content out behind the scenes, so... Yeah, I guess just stay posted to all of our social media platforms, website, hoopscoopmedia.com for content. And, you know, we will see you possibly midweek, maybe in uh, one week to talk about the main results of the game. But until then, uh, hopefully there are some good games of college basketball. I know uh, we will both be have our eye. Ha- we both have our eye on lots of games this weekend and. Hope you can watch them too and have a good week, guys.